Hello, I'm Toby Haydock, and I'm hoping to win a badge for podcast excellence. Well, hello, listeners. Um, I haven't done many regulars of Doctor Who for this podcast for various reasons, uh, but it's always a joy when one agrees to do it. And so now, having covered the last of his stories with my previous interviewee, who I did only three or four hours ago, uh, we can sort of talk about whatever we want. So I'm going to ask him to introduce himself and tell me why he's talking to me about Doctor Who. I'm Matthew Waterhouse, and I played the boy Adric in Doctor Who for 40-plus episodes. You certainly... You certainly did, and you, uh, you know, you were the companion who died. Uh, and uh, well, let's let's go right back though. Um, tell me about yourself. What was your background? What was your childhood like? Uh, middle class commuter belt childhood. Little private school after the age of twelve. Um, in the school play, kind of acting, interested in acting. Um, that's really my background. There's not much more to say about it. Um, toppled into a t- job at the BBC uh, and then toppled into a TV series set in a public school and that led to me getting to be cast in Doctor Who. It's an extraordinary thing, though. I can't remember who I was talking to, but I was somebody, talking to somebody very recently who said that, essentially, you know, you are there, a young man, suddenly playing the lead in a television programme... And nobody preps you for it. You're just suddenly there on the floor. I mean, it's extraordinary, the man management of it. Yes, yes, man management. I don't the phrase man management didn't exist in those days, I don't suppose. Um, but, yes, no, it was quite strange. Yes, one sort of... They said, we would like to do it. It was very exciting. And I went and had lunch with John Nathan Turner and I met Chris Bidmead. And then I went into rehearsal with absolutely no, no sort of chat or explanation or... or help or advice or anything, you just there you are, there you are, you're in a rehearsal room with Tom Baker who arrived late the first day, I'll never forget that um, and you're thrown into it, yes, none of this now, you know, everybody uh, uh, Gareth Roberts said to me, Russell Davis, he said his phrase was, he always wraps his young actors in gauze, I wasn't wrapped in gauze at all, I was, I was wrapped in wire netting <laughs> no, I wasn't in that bad well, I mean, now, obviously, that you, you have experience and you're older, you, look, you, you famously, Tom Baker, told you to get lost or something, the first thing he yeah, said to you. Yeah. Uh, what, how do you rationalise that now, knowing maybe people better and knowing older people better? Where do you think Tom's head was at then? Well, I'm not going to psychoanalyse Tom uh, or anybody else. Um, I don't know. As we know, he, you know, he, he was had been in, on the series for a very long time, felt it's very much his series. Um, but quite why that led to him being rude to a, a, a young actor, I don't know. I think there may have been a degree of humour in it, which I didn't pick up. In other words, I, I think it may actually have been less directly rude than it appeared to me, because I was very young, because I didn't read people very well, as you don't when you're a neurotic teenager. You know, We don't see people in subtle shades when we're, we're that young. So uh, it may well actually have been less aggressive than I took it to be and more good-humoured than I took it to be. But it did come as a, <laughs> a shock. Because <laughs> he was my hero. I mean, I had, a, I had a, literally the day I was cast in Doctor Who, I had a poster of him on my wall. 
And I did when I was cast. I did think, well, uh, that poster has to come down because it just, you just cannot work with actor whose poster you have on the wall. But it didn't come down, so I did still have it on the wall the day I went to the first day of State of Decay rehearsal. Because, of course, the programmes were often done out of order, so enthusiasts who know that State of Decay is not my first story in narrative order will know that it is the first story that was actually made. Uh, so, so it was still on the wall the day that I went to that first terrifying day, uh, first terrifying read-through, um, but not on the wall come midnight that evening. <laughs> All right. So, so the greeting did for the poster? The poster had to go anyway, but it probably did speed up the removal of the poster from the wall, yes. <laughs> it probably did. It's interesting, because it's interesting what they do with, with the characters. That when, you look, when one looks at um, the development of the character now, is that they do things like... There's that lovely scene in State of Decay where the woman is very nice to him and she makes him some food and says, you remind me of my son. And they go in the line, yeah, have you got any cheese? And you think, if you try and make a character likeable, you don't do that. Or do you think that that was this artful dodger thing, this, that they wanted him to be a bit of a rapscallion? Well, Terence Dix certainly wrote an artful dodger, yes. So there's no question that, you know, there was this sort of little outline of the character which was given to Terence, given to Andrew Smith and, and presumably the others, but they interpreted in different ways, which is why the boy in Full Circle and the boy in State of actually feel quite different. Uh, they, they were working from, you know, a paragraph. I suppose Chris Bidmead had turned out this paragraph, but Terence definitely went for the, oh, oh, this is an artful dodger. All right, I'm going to write an artful dodger. Cheese, boy! You know, that was Terence's thinking about it, I think. And obviously, t t two very different directors on your first two, both Peters, but, but Moffat and Grimwade couldn't have been more different, did No, they couldn't have been. Um, dear Peter Moffat, theatrical old BBC directing queen, very good with actors, which is important if you're going to be a director. It does help if you like actors. Um, Peter Grimwade, talented man, um, good with cameras, good at angles. He would have been much happier directing Thunderbirds than Doctor because <laughs> he would have liked to, he would have been much happier with just little plastic bits he could move about here and there. Uh, he wasn't very good with actors. And at first, he, I, 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 I thought it was me. I thought, oh dear, he, he's, 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 he's very sort of edgy and shaggedy with me and sort of, you know, his arm, his, he had sort of jaggy elbows which somehow always seemed to be, be sort of jagging the air. You know, he's a very sort of angular and uncomfortable person. He wasn't relaxed at all. He was one of those sort of person who sort of seemed to move in angles. Very sort of uh, jagged person. Um, but then I found that absolutely everybody else found him almost impossible to be directed by as opposed to just me. Yeah. Um, he had a talent, um, and in many ways I like him, by the way. I, 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 it's not that even that I don't, didn't like him, but he wasn't cut out for directing actors. He didn't have any delicacy as a director. He didn't... One of the skills of a director is, of course, the ability to draw out of an actor what they're capable of doing. That's within the particular context and their particular age and things. It is, is drawing, getting out of them the work they're able to do. Uh, and, and Peter just didn't have that facility. Moffat, Peter Moffat, did have that facility much more. And yet Grimwave stuff, I think of all the stuff, is the stuff that stands out in terms of pacing and... Well, he, yes, all of the rhythm of, of, the rhythm of, of uh, stuff as a director and the, the angles and so forth, yes, he did have a talent for that. There's no question about that. But he didn't understand actors. And, and um, uh, I remember Richard Todd being just absolutely appalled by him. Richard Todd, of course, was a huge movie star and had worked with everyone on the planet. And he was just 
appalled by him. But there's no question that, yes, he had a narrative talent. And oddly, what Peter really wanted to be was a writer. Uh, when he became a writer, he wasn't much of a writer. It's very odd. His talent actually was narrating stories through image. That was his gift. But he couldn't work with actors. And when he tried to become a get to the end to the end of storytelling, which is the script, his gift didn't really lie there. I don't think, as I remember his his. I wasn't in any of his scripts actually. But uh, but as I remember, well, I was for brief, very briefly. Yes, yes. of course, I saved time flight. <laughs> but. Um, uh, uh, he, 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 that wasn't where his gift lay but that was what he really wanted apparently all the time his desire was to write not, not to direct and not to, not to even do the, the camera stuff it was actually writing and then you had um, I mean, for Warriors Gate you had a director who was effectively um, sacked and then reinstated and clearly Paul Joyce he never did Doctor Who again um, uh, and uh, that seems to have been one where everything sort of production was a bit of a disaster. Yes, I didn't know Paul. You mean Paul was hired to do Warriors Gate, sacked and then brought back to he do was Warriors Gate? halfway through um, the shooting. Really? I didn't know that. I didn't know that. It's amazing what people don't tell you. It's fascinating. One of the things I've always found at Doctor Who events is people come and tell me stuff about programmes I was in that <laughs> I don't know. And here, 33 years later, you're telling me something I never knew. Yeah. I didn't know Paul was actually sacked. Of course, he wouldn't have come into rehearsal and announced it. No. Um... I mean, again, he again. I mean, he was basically, as I understand, a photographer. He had, he 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 had been a set photographer. Um, in fact, I know that a couple of the actors for in Warriors Gate had come from BBC Shakespeare's that he had been the studio photographer for. Well, everyone has to start somewhere, don't they? And, uh, and the fact of the matter show. is, the program is really good. They all are. I don't think there's anything I mean that isn't good. No, uh, they're all really good. And um, uh, but actually, I mean, Paul struck me, you see, as, as slightly ineffectual. Actually, in the rehearsal room, Tom walked all over him. Um, I, I've got a great affection for Tom and, and the only time I was really, really upset was when he, he completely rewrote scenes I was in and I hated them and I was too young to fight it. And, and Paul Joyce never argued with him, never ever said, no, you can't do that. There's a, there's a lot of Warriors Gate I was supposed to actually wear the Doctor's scarf and hat. And, um, and I just thought I was really looking for, I think that's cool, because of course I'm a Doctor Who boy, I, I'm a fan of this stuff, I thought that's just going to be fantastic. And Tom just, the minute the, the um, costume designer brought Tom's hat and scarf to the rehearsal room and put the hat on my head and put the scarf around me, and Paul Joyce was standing there saying, oh, it's absolutely marvellous. And the, um, the, re the, the costume designer said, oh, absolutely, love this is going to be great. And I thought, I'm fab, here I am. I've only been in Doctor Who for a few weeks, and here I am, I'm dressed as the Doctor already. That, that, that's cool. Now, that's my dream come true. And to Tom came back from lunch and just noticed me in it. And the, we rehearsed the scene, the net, the scene, in which I put... I'm at, and what, he rehearsed the scene in which he leaves the TARDIS without his hat and scarf, and he said to Paul, I think I shall take my hat and scarf, don't you, Paul? And instead of Paul saying, well, no, because that messes up, and said, oh, yes, of course, oh, of course, Tom, yes, yeah, absolutely, Tom. So he killed off what was my favourite moment as, as a, an actor in Warriors Gate. Just Tom killed it off, and Paul didn't stop it being killed off, and I was too young to fight it. Uh, and that's the, the only thing where, where one of Tom's rewrites, because I li liked a lot of his rewrites, um, there's the only time where Tom's rewrite, I thought, this is a deliberate effort to sabotage something, to spoil something, to take something away from somebody in order that nobody notices that person, so they only notice dear Mr. Baker. And, and that was an unfortunate thing, um, because otherwise, you know, 
Tom and I, it, it was it was difficult but all right. You know, there were a lot of actors on Doctor Who had a worse time than I did with it. So, um, but yes, yeah, so that was my, that's my main memory of Paul Joyce is thinking, why is this man not letting? not letting the script that's been written be produced and everybody thought everybody thought it'll be a great little moment it'll, and it was about half an episode the boy walked around an outfit for half an episode it's going to be wonderful and Tom killed it and nobody fought it and of course I stood there as a shy queenie little teenager unable to open my mouth what could, what could I say what could I do under those circumstances I'm talking of sort of curious personalities one of the things I loved about the Keeper of Truck and DVD commentary um, that you do with both Johnny Byrne and Anthony Ainley who both sadly since died is that Anthony Ainley has always been this sort of enigmatic figure and, and there have been sort of reports of him being quite strange to fans either he's, he's, he's embraced the whole thing or he's been very brusque and said no and in that commentary with you he's, he's very sweet to you and, and he seems to clearly enjoy himself doing that commentary and then of course he died and, and, and we never got to find out much sort of more about him did you, I mean, it seemed to be that you two got on very well. Oh, I, I, yeah, I got on very well with him, I think, and, and um, he was great. He was great. And, and, and the, the, the Anthony on the commentary—it's the last time I saw him. Uh, the Anthony on the commentary, the Anthony that I remember. That's the way he was when we were making Doctor Who. Um, though, of course, because people, you know, you know, people go through. People who are associated with Doctor Who for a long time, however much they love it, and I, I always love it, they go through phases with it where sometimes you want to go with things, sometimes you don't want to. And sometimes, to be honest, you have to make a living and, and people sometimes get offended because somebody wants them to go and do something and then doesn't want to do it for five pounds. So I think people chat about what Anthony, that Anthony may have gone through positive and negative phases, I don't know. But it may, in fact, not have been more than just you sitting at home thinking, yes, I want to do this, or no, I'm just not in the mood. I don't want to. It can be as simple as that. I mean, it's amazing to me. I was told in the 80s, uh, somebody told me a few years, it was really odd in the 80s, you just disappeared. And I thought, I didn't disappear, I was working. I, and I don't mean this as a, as a grandiose boast, because frankly it would be pathetic as boasts go. But I was an actor who in the mid-90s, I was still working. I was only Doctor Who companion actor who in the mid-90s still claimed to be a working actor, somebody who was still getting jobs. And yet everyone was saying, oh, you disappeared. No, I didn't disappear. So it, it, I'm sure it was like that with Anthony. There's all sorts of, you know, once you get into the world of gossip and conspiracy theories, and, oh, everybody's very moody, and oh, this person doesn't like this person, and oh, Anthony, oh, he's just obsessed with money. Whatever people say, it's almost certainly not quite like that. Yeah. So my experience of Anthony on the commentary is exactly Anthony as I knew him. I never found him a difficult person. Uh, I found he was funny. He was very witty. Um, was he strange? Well, for God's sake. What actor isn't strange? I'm strange. We're all strange. It probably was strange. But he did very little harm. There's a novelty. Actors may be strange, but they do a great deal less harm than a lot of people who are less strange. Well, and, all right, from a purely technical point of view, then, as an actor, um, who were the actors that you encountered on the show that you felt you either learnt from or whose work in techniques you, you admired or surprised you? Well, I did learn a bit from Tom Baker, which is fatal. <laughs> Never learn act. Tom's a wonderful Doctor Who. I adore him in every... I really do. It's ridiculous, but I actually do. But nobody wants to study Tom Baker to learn how to act. <laughs> 
But um, you know, Tony was somebody who actually had, was quite technically skillful. But a lot of the guest actors were. I mean, one of the, the points that you make in your show is that everybody goes, oh, the acting doctor was a bit subpar, it was all a bit rubbish, wasn't it? The acting doctor is almost always really good. Uh, the guest casts are good, the supporting cast are good. Um, and they say, oh, yeah, oh, doctors are all great, but those companions are all rubbish. Actually, the companions are very good. And here's a very interesting acting note that playing the Doctor in some ways is actually easier than playing the Companion. Technically, the, the passive, I don't understand what's going on, mode is more difficult for an actor to play than the sort of, well, it's completely obvious what's going on, we're just going over here and blow up a Dalek, it's all... That, the, 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 the actual tone of the Doctor's actually easier, in a way, to play than the Companions. I've found this, I've been doing... For, for the delightful and now late and lamented audio go, I've been doing these, um, I did a couple of audio books for them where you read all of the characters. I was very struck by even now the note, the, the, the tones of the Doctor are easier to get than the tones of the companion. Yeah. So actually the acting in Doctor Who, oh, it's all rubbish, one word. It's actually the acting in Doctor Who is almost always very good and interesting and much better than people think it is and say it is. Well, I think you three all suffer because there are three of you as well, so not only are you getting the exposition lines, but you're having to divide them between three of you, not even the exposition lines, the the prompting of the exposition from the Doctor. Yes, there is yes, a lot. Yes, yes. I was at a, an event the other day with Mark Strickson and, and, and Sarah, and Mark was saying something, uh, uh, no, Robert, the interviewer, was saying something I'd never ever heard before. Apparently, in the entire time that, that uh, uh, Nyssa and Turlow are in the TARDIS, Turlow addresses two lines to her. <laughs> I'm fascinated by the fact that somebody has actually counted this. That's interesting in itself. But apparently, yes, there's an example of characters talking through the Doctor and never addressing each other. Um, though I have to say, I've never had a problem with the crowded TARDIS. I don't think it's necessary for every character in every story to be equally prominent, as long as they're well served throughout their run in the series, which we all were, actually. Tegan is well served, Adric is well served, Nissa is well served. They get, mo they get stories that are primarily about them and the Doctor. You know, of course, my stories of Earthshock, obviously, Kinder to an extent, the Keeper of Trark and the Goblin. Um, Sarah's Black, Black Orchid is obviously. Um, Kinder is very much Janet's and, 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 and Adric's. Um, but it, I don't think it matters. I've never had a problem. Maybe I just wasn't a sophisticated actor to, to be offended by the fact that I'm only speaking exposition. Because I never quite got over the intoxicated sense that, Christ, I'm a Doctor Who actor. I can't believe it. I never quite got past that. Um, so I never actually sat around mo moaning. I'm, I only ever do exposition. Um, I, I never actually minded. Maybe I should have minded more, but I wasn't a sophisticated enough boy at that time, really, to, to worry about it. I was just very pleased to be there and to be, have my name rolling in the credits week after week after week after week in Doctor Who. And, and how were you to work with, do you think? What, what was your demeanour? Was this happiness? Were you somebody that went to work with a grin and, and you know, had fun doing it, or were you too scared to have fun? Oh, I, think I, the, the, I, yeah, I think it was quite a lot of fun. No, we're going to work with a grin. Well, it, it, the, 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 with Doctor Who and certainly with Tom Tom who could be very very sweet and very generous and you can see it in some of the stuff he does with me He's, he can be it's, it's, it, again it's a fact that everybody says Tom's not a generous actor and, and nobody would argue that he's the most generous actor in equity but he did a lot of beautiful stuff with me and he looks me in the eye famously doesn't look people in the eye but he did look me in the eye and, um, and, and he does scenes that are absolutely beautiful but he did determine the tone of the day he, if he was in a bad mood, your day was going to be horrible. 
If he was in a good mood, it'll be fine, and it may even be really good fun. But it, uh, that's something I, I've never tolerated later as an actor, the idea that somebody else decides whether my day is going to be good or bad. But of course, when you're a, a boy that young, you know, you're in a sense too passive to sort of not be just influenced by the atmosphere around you. So I'd be lying if I always sent, went in there with a whistle and a tune, but, uh, but, uh, um, but I think I went in there as happy as possible. Um, well, the dynamic interests me. I mean, when I listen to the DVD commentaries, the Peter Davison era DVD commentaries are, are famously, you know, the, generally the, the leads, um, and you have a very there's a very specific dynamic to, to those. And sometimes, as a listener, I feel slightly uncomfortable because there is you are you are teased. I, I feel sometimes in in those. And now I don't know if that is you all having fun and it's all you are all complicit in it or if there's a, a hangover from the relationship you had 20 odd years ago that uh, revisits it yes I, I think there is a hangover from the relationship um, I don't mind being teased as long as it's amusing um, but the, the, the danger I think to be absolutely honest with you the commentaries aren't very good when there's a doctor on it because or actually I've only I've never listened to any of them just, this is just my experience of the one or two I did with Peter the commentaries aren't very good because the relay, it becomes the doctor's commentary with guest stars. It becomes about the doctor. So that if anybody else has some thought to say, uh, one is a bit hesitant about saying it because then it's taking over from the person who really matters, who is the doctor. I'm not sure that because the, lead, the actor happened to be the lead that his memories are any clearer or more accurate or that he's more intelligent than I am or has more to say than I am or even knows the series as well as I do. I don't think that... Um, I think, which is why the Keeper of Traken, somebody told me that the Keeper of Traken commentary is actually a classic commentary apparently, not just the ones I was in, but people have told me oh, that's the best commentary or one of the best commentaries ever, and I think it's because we all talked equally and said things, when we had a thought we came out with it and we laughed and joked, but once you have a doctor, it, in the commentaries it does become about, it's the doctor's commentary and the rest of us are sitting there. Well, <clears throat> tell me about, partially because it's a DVD that you're not on for obvious reasons, and it's one that I've only got a very small anecdote from the, from the composer. Tell me about Time Flight, your last, your last engagement before briefly coming back to Caves of Androzani. But was that weird coming back to a show that you'd just been killed off in? I knew I was coming back to it. I'd been asked to come back to it. Do you know why I came back to it? Is it so that you'd be in the Radio Times? Yes. John Nathan Turner didn't want my name... Because, of course, the Radio Times came out a week early. And John Nathan Turner didn't want my name not in the Radio Times a few days before the final episode of Earthshock was broadcast. Um, so that's actually why I'm in Time Flight. A wonderful thing was, I, I suppose I can say this now that Audio Go is no more, that I was on the shortlist to read Time Flight as an audio because everybody thought it was very funny that because they require the, the, the audio target books, they require somebody who's been in it, it was in the story and it, somebody said it would be fantastic to have Matthew reading Time Flight and I actually thought yes it would have been fantastic to have Matthew reading Time Flight um, but of course it's not going to happen now well, not that we know of anyway unless something else something magical falls out of the air um, but yeah Time Flight was 
actually lovely. I mean, to me, it was very easy. You just go in there, and everybody seemed pleased to see me, um, and we did it, and I left. It was it was painless. Maybe it should have... Again, maybe you, you would wish me to, to be implying that it was really painful and difficult, and I had a headache about it, but not at all. No, it was quite fun to come back well, well, Ron and Jones do it. Well, a director that not many people really talk about. He sort of... His, his work sort of seems to fly under the radar a little bit. Do you have strong memories? Any memories of Ron? Hey, Mom, yeah... Um, classic gay, tall, masculine gay man of the time with the moustache and all those things that certain kinds of gay men had in the early 80s. He was very sweet to me. I, I liked him. Mainly, I remember, actually, was... was uh, um, he, he was... Uh, when we were on location for Black Orchid, he had his little eye to the camera, was trying to make construct some shot, no doubt, uh, some fabulous cinematic shot. It was taking forever to get right. And all I remember... The main memory I have of Ron is John Nathan Turner walking up to the camera but Ron Jones leaning into it, and John says, Stop faffing about, Ron! <laughs> and that is my main memory of, of Ron Jones. Well, you, you mentioned Kinder and, uh, and Richard Todd finding um, uh, Grimway difficult. It, it, what's very interesting about that, and particularly as Grimway is famously not great with actors, you have Simon Rouse there giving, I think, one of the best performances in Doctor Who guest cast annals. Giving so, so was that side? Did Simon pretty much have to find that performance himself? Do you think? Yes, yes. Simon is a very intense, or was a very intense man, and um, and the intensity was just naturally in him. Yes, he created that performance himself. Um, without, as far as I, I don't remember, much discussion of the sort of why don't you doing it a bit more madly, Simon? <laughs> I don't remember that being one of Peter Grimway's notes. No, I think that was a, a, a very intense character uh, that, that that he produced for himself. Well, tell me about. You mentioned that you know in the nineties, you know. Um, you gamefully employed, um, and we don't. When we talk to people from Doctor Who, I think we often neglect the stuff that they do outside of it. So, what's some of the work that you've done outside of Doctor Who that you sort of think, oh, I wish I could talk about that more? Uh, well, nothing specific. It just um, I was a working actor. One of my favourite jobs was um, playing. Um, the boy in uh, the Neil Simon trilogy, Brighton Beach Memoirs, at the West Yorkshire Playhouse. I think I, as an actor, it's very interesting. What we all love as actors, and it doesn't happen very often, is the leap of imagination that says, I know you can do this, but I want you to do this that you've not done before. Uh, in a world of types, it's very difficult for that to happen. But because I'm not really a type in casting terms, I'm quite difficult to place. I've been very lucky in that at least half a dozen times in my life, some really good director has made that leap of imagination, has said, you can do that. I'm not a New Yorker, I'm not Jewish, and this guy, uh, the artistic director of West Yorkshire Place, saw me doing a, a one-man show about... Um, about Huckleberry Finn and said, you know, I want you to, to come and do um, do Brighton Beach memoirs and that um, there. And it was just really cool. And that's what we all want, that leap of imagination. And in, in a smaller level, something I absolutely love, it's nothing grandiose about it. I did an episode of Dark Shadows for Big Finish a couple of years ago. I was absolutely thrilled to do it. They, they wrote me an email. I, ha I hadn't done Doctor Who for them at that time. I'd been a bit, no doubt, the, the gossip would have it that I'd been very difficult about it and saying no and be very temperamental. In fact, I just felt I, I didn't want to do it. But um, I didn't have to do Dark Shadows, and I got this email saying, Dear Matthew... Would you like to play a mild-mannered, occult-worshipping serial killer? <laughs> and I wrote back and said, Dear James, 
Yes, I've always wanted to play a mild man a cult worshipping serial killer. Um, that's what all of people who make their living one way or another from, from acting is they want that leap of imagination, that thing that says, people don't, wouldn't imagine you can do this, but I know you can. And that's always when the great gift comes. That's when the real excitement is, when somebody asks you to do something you haven't done before. And, and what about geographically? I mean, you, you live in the States, um, so when you... When you it, do you, do you miss home, or do you get home often enough? Do you still consider yourself English, even though... You know... Oh, yes, I, I live in America because I'm an American partner. That, that's the, it's, not, it's not any more complicated than that. I live there because I'm an American partner, and I write. I spend most of my time over there writing, but I still come back to do, to do acting, Doctor Who work, whatever it might be. Um, but, but I'm there just for personal reasons. And, uh, yes, I, I'm still very English. Though I've always felt slightly like an outsider. And there is some value in, in living in a... If you feel like an outsider, there's some value in living in a country where you definitely are an outsider, because then it's very clear. Yeah. There's some value in, in living in a country... You know, in America, I'm a foreigner. Um, I'm very definitely English. And um, there's something actually quite like that. Um, and so what about, what about you as a, as, a, as a person and your sort of world view? What if... Uh, you know, time, money, influence were no object. What are the things that get your goat or the things that you are passionate about, the things that we perhaps might not know about you from, you know, from anecdotes about working as an actor on television? You know, there's more to life than that. Yes, well, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm fascinated by the arts. I go to art galleries all the time. I, um, I, like, I like extreme art. I like extreme music, extreme... I, I'm fascinated by extreme art. Um, and people who push boundaries. I like poetry a lot. Uh, now, to, to like poetry seems highly twee and affected. But the fact is that poetry is the most exhilarating the kind of poetry I like anyway, which is your visionary and bizarre. Um, you know, if you actually read poetry written by living people, you're very much a minority now. Um, but I actually find it fascinating. I like the visionary imagination. I've always been much more interested in the films of Derek Jarman, for instance, than the films of Steven Spielberg. I like unusual and extreme art, people doing something. I don't like the word original, because nothing's original. It's always drawn from things. And as a novelist myself, I'm always pushing towards something unusual and, and visionary and slightly elusive. I like the ungraspable. Uh, the non I like writers who are not journalistic writers, who are reaching towards something else. I'm very interested in that, and, and, and in all the arts. Um, so that's something you didn't know about me, or maybe you did, I don't know. Well, when you wrote your, your memoirs, uh, you, you took the unusual step of writing it in the third person. Um, was that always going to be the case? In what, what, uh, no, it, 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 it wasn't um, preconceived, but I want, I, it, it came very early in the writing of Blue Box Boy because I didn't want to write a book about myself. And I thought once the word I is in there, in, in a memoir, it's going to be all over the place. It's going to be a little a peppery thing just dotted all over the place. So I thought by making myself a character in it, so that when you picture me in a rehearsal room, it, you're not picturing rehearsal room through my eyes, but you're picturing me standing there next to Tom and next to Lara and next to Peter Grimway. You're actually picturing the whole thing. Um, I write a great deal towards image. I'm, I, 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 the, it's astounding to me these little black shapes on pages can create pictures in people's heads. And that's one of the things I write. I hope I write humorously as well. But I write a great deal towards pictures, as I do in my novels, uh, of which I've written three. And my most recent, Precious Liars, was only published a couple of weeks ago. And it's very good. 
Well, tell us um, about it. And how do you, I mean, there's surely nothing more for you know, when I write, I, I, I tend to have to, somebody has to give me an idea, or a lot of my writing comes from my own, you've seen the shows, but, you know, I can't make that up, it's stuff that happened. The blank page terrifies me, where do, where do, you, where do you begin? Um, characters come into my head um, and begin to demand to be write about, and they begin to come alive. It's characters first. The first, the first novel, Fate's Flowers, is about this monstrous woman called Sarah Smith, absolute cow. Um, and she appeared in my head and what I was fascinated by her was that she was a woman who believed strongly in her own goodness her own capacity for kindness and for love she believes in herself as a woman who can give a great deal of love and can receive love she's just a wonderful woman except she's actually a poisonous monster and she's the kind of person who in the end will always destroy the object of her love uh, she, she never knows she never understands this of herself but in fact, she's a character who always kills what she loves. And because Fate Flowers is kind of very dark and grand guignol, it gets quite strange. But I think that is something that exists in human psychology, really exists in real life. This strange relationship between love and the need to destroy what you love. And, and, and she just came into my head and lived there for a while. And I, just, I didn't have much choice, frankly, to write this damn thing, just to get her out of my head. Uh, and the current novel, Precious Liars. Uh, there was a woman in New Haven, Connecticut, the city I live in, uh, not quite homeless. She lived in a very low price accommodation, which, in fact, after her death, was condemned as unfit for human habitation. But she wasn't technically homeless. But she would stand... During the day, she called herself the poetry lady, and she stood outside a coffee shop. And for 50 cents or whatever you gave her, she would recite a Byron poem. And at night, she stood outside an Irish bar just across the road and called herself the Shakespeare lady. And she would recite Hamlet's soliloquy. You gave herself 25 cents, she would, she would recite Hamlet's soliloquy. And I was just fascinated by it. And she was there for years and years. She sometimes wasn't there, but, but she would come back and reappear. And I was just fascinated by her. So for my new novel, I've moved her to New York and various characters encounter her. It's basically a series of intertwined love stories, actually. But the Shakespeare lady is this rather ghostly and strange presence. Um, uh, with whom all the characters in one way or another interrelate. But I find it fascinating. How marginal can you be as a good artist um, than a woman who recites Shakespeare not very well for coins? <laughs> but I just adore her. I mean, I have to say, she might not have been um, Judy Dench, but I've seen a lot more boring actors at the RSC. <laughs> um, and I was just fascinated by her. So, so she, she became, she is the character that came into my head and made Precious Liars come alive. Um, and her fate in the novel, in fact, is the fate I found out of the real woman, though, because it's a novel, things that have been done can be undone, because that's the thrill of fiction and the imagination, isn't, isn't it? So I can give her a slightly different ending than there was the ending of the real woman. Everybody thinks Matthew was an actor who now acts a bit of a big finish, but has sort of become a writer. It's not like that at all, because it's all one thing, isn't it? It's all one life. Do you think, I mean, it's all one thing. It's all one experience. Because as a, as a writer, I speak all the lines aloud. And as a reader of poetry, even though I don't write poetry, I think rhythmically all the time. I think imagistically all the time. It's all the stuff I do as an actor anyway. They're all the same thing. They all bleed into one... I, this sounds pretentious, but one life as a person who somehow scrapes together a life doing exactly what he wants to do. It's criminal, isn't it? I, I, I have done... 
I've had some dark moments in my life as, as an actor. I've had a couple of cliff-edge moments where I really thought I would never work again. I've had that, which we all have. But I'm somebody who somehow got to where I am, God knows how, doing exactly what I want to do. And Why did <laughs> you, can't you knock it. work again? Well, I, well, every actor gets that point where you've been out of work and you think, oh my God. And I, I, I because I, I'm, I'm short and boyish, I, I, I spent a lot of time being much, being cast much younger than I actually am. Um, and I, I got to a point in my mid-30s where I thought, I can't play a boy. I can't go on stage in shorts again. I can't play Edmund in The Lion, The Witch in the Wardrobe ever again. And it sort of actually became this thing with me. I'm not wearing shorts on the stage again. But of course, once you're established as you're a guy who in his early 30s can still play a boy in sort of Edwardian things, um, it's very difficult to get out of that. And that's the point at which I thought I would never work again, or might never work again. But of course, then something happens and you do work again. And you find a new lover and you move to America and then people start asking, asking you to, to work. And of course, one of the great things about Big Finish, which is worth saying, we all, I love Big Finish and they, they've been very fabulous to all we old Doctor Who actors. I, and I really mean that. I admire them hugely. But I had the extraordinary thing of being in a position where I knew psychologically I could work. I had a period when I was in America where I thought, I don't want to do that. But I knew if I wanted to work, I could actually write to Big Finish and say, would you like me to work for you? Because I think I would like to. Psychologically, there are you know, very few actors in equity, actors who are much grand, more grand than I, who, can't, who aren't in a position where they could actually say, I'd like to work, do you have anything? And somebody might say, Actually, yes, I do. Well, look, um, I've exceeded my time, as I always do, so I will um, ask you the final two questions, the first of which, uh, what is your charity? Survival International. Doctor Who, as you know, Matthew, is 50 years old this year. In fact, it's 50 years old as we record this in three days' time. Uh, and these podcasts are being listened to by a dedicated bunch of followers who all like Doctor Who. So what is your message to the listening Doctor Who fans in this illustrious week? I'm really looking forward to the 51st year. <laughs> That's your 50 is only a number, by the way. It's thrilling and fabulous. We should mark it. But the rule, you know, the, the, the requirement in the 50th year is the same as the 49th and the same as the 51st, which is to write funny, colourful, interesting, scary, exhilarating stories. So that's what it's always been for 50 years, and that's what it has to go on being. Matthew Waterhouse, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Brilliant. Thank you. Hope that was all right for you. It was fun. Good. Thanks, Matthew, and thanks to the wonderful Robert Dick for lining that up. He's a splendid fellow. Um, Matthew's charity is Survival International. What I've not heard of, it helps tribal peoples defend their lives, protect their lands and determine their futures. An excellent course, an excellent cause at www.survivalinternational, all one word, all small case, dot org. www.survivalinternational.org. The next one up is a festive one. This one's overrun because it's close editing time, deadline stuff at Christmas. So I'm just going to say goodbye and bung a trailer on the end for something that's available for Big Finish right now. Bye. Keep it safe. You must keep it safe, my boy. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, The Early Adventures, An Ordinary Life. You people are right? You need some help? Please. We just need to shelter, to check on our friend. He's, he's been taken ill. What are you doing, Stephen? 
We don't know who these people are. We know they're friendly. That's all that matters right now. I'm from Kingston, Jamaica. Just got here three months ago. Michael, two weeks. Yes, but I've been here for more than ten years. We lost our home, and now we're locked out. Earth in the 1950s. You're from nearer this time than me. Have you ever thought about stopping? Staying in one place for a while? Forever, maybe? Oh, that would be strange. We've been on the run for so long. The best we can hope for is a quiet life. An ordinary life. Fish and chips? (laughs) (laughs) Fish and chips! (laughs) Big finish. We love stories. We are coming.